Does it? I don't know. I can't explain exactly where it comes from, but I can see it coming from another plane. We absolutely shortchange ourselves by thinking all there is to this life is that can be understood through the rational mind, your five senses. It's like, no, I'm sorry, man, but that's just such a limited paradigm. There's so much more to this universe that we can even begin to comprehend. Welcome everyone to this week's episode of I Believe. Really excited today. We're very lucky to be joined on Zoom by Jim Wilson, amazingly talented pianist, composer, musical technician, all things piano and artistic musical composition. A friend of ours, known to us as our piano guy. Jim, welcome to this week's show. It's fantastic to have you here and thanks ever so much for joining us. I know we've introduced you. You know, our listeners have heard our take on your introduction, but there's so much more to you. It's a little fun thing to start off with. How would you introduce yourself? Wow, I, already you're hitting me with these stump questions, man. <laughs> I, I, this is not fair. Jim Wilson is, uh, I write music and I restore pianos. So I often say that I write tunes and I tune right. Oh, oh, see how it needed a little beat to kind of land with you. And then it just... <laughs> Oh, oh, he write tunes and he tunes right. I haven't heard that before. I love that. Yeah, there you go. Let's tell a little bit about how we came to know Jim, because that would be good for the listeners. So we came to know Jim through the fact that my childhood piano needed more than tuning right. It needed a complete overhaul and fix. My, My mom passed. She left my childhood piano to me. And Jules and I were making the decision to move to the West Coast from life over in the UK. The piano needed to get from the East Coast to the West Coast. And we had this big dialogue with all of these piano restorers out on the Mm. East Coast. Should we bother? And the answer from all of them was, no, it's not Mm. worth anything. You could buy a new one for less, obviously. For less, right, right, right. And so we contacted a friend of ours, a mutual friend of ours named Richard Gibbs, said, who do you know? And he said, Jim Wilson, he's the guy. He said, if you want the absolute best in town and he's not available, call Jim Wilson. (laughs) No. Ad verbatim. (laughs) No, no, he did not. So You were the best in town. And in reaching out to you, the beauty of that dialogue, if you remember it, was ultimately a a conversation about value and it being beyond the dollar worth of anything. The X factor. Yeah, you had said, look, this is memories, this is more than that, and helped us restore our family piano and bring music back into my life. And we got to know you through that. And the day you brought the piano to us, Jules was jackhammering out in the back, as you do when, <laughs> when the piano of your life is being returned to you. you know? I just presume that that was something he did every day, just, just for fun. Just like, <laughs> it's my workout, my daily workout, yeah, right, jackhammering right. concrete. But also uh, another red flag on Jules's musical career, which is <laughs> non-existent. Yeah. Yeah. 
So right. we got to know you right away as the piano yeah. guy. Why don't you share a little bit about how you became the piano guy? The guy who's not just restoring, but yeah. also the music and the musician that you are. Sure. Before I do that, I'll just say about your piano, especially on these types of pianos where it's going to be um, a bit of dough to restore it. You know, I want to make sure that we have this conversation about the value of the restoration and what the piano may or may not be worth on the back end. But uh, the restorations that give me the most joy are exactly these, where it's the family piano. Because I sometimes buy and sell Steinways. I'll buy an old Steinway, completely restore it, restring it, refinish it, and put a new action in and then sell it. But the ones that bring me the most joy are exactly that. Your little piano that has this history behind it. And then it's like extreme makeover, you know, it's like, okay, now for the big reveal, it's just such an emotional moment when people get to play the piano that they've grown up with and they're used to it sounding and feeling a certain way. And then they finally get a chance to see it in its glory and better than it was before with better hammers and better sound so that was a joy and and i had such a great connection with you i could tell that uh this meant something to you, but both of you are just such quality people. And that's one of the blessings of my gig is that I get to meet such wonderful people like yourself. I think what you didn't get to meet in that is all the people that had that memory, which was my family right. and extended right. family. I don't think they ever heard the piano sound that good. Yeah, it's right, 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 right. Because yeah. when we bought it with second hand, it was a learning piano. It was bought at a neighbor's in a sale and brought to the house. And what was my younger sister and I learned so when right. they came to the house to visit us, they all heard the piano sound, first of all, better because you actually restrung it as well as everything yeah. else and well. everything, the keys and everything. And they said when they'd never seen it like that was like somebody had taken an old car and restored it to its original quality and better. And two, they heard the music again. It choked him up. My dad sat here in tears because wow. he knows and my mom's missing, you know, but that was in the living room. That's what I used to do while everybody else was running around. And I had mm. to find my music again. To add to that story is, and you'll know this, the fires in Malibu came within months of the piano coming back to the yeah. house. Yeah. And yeah. we're watching it come on the news straight at the house. The neighbors saved the house. Right. So right. It, and they, the piano. And they saved the piano, but the electricity was out in the whole of Malibu for however long. And right. we were back in the house with no electricity, no lights, except for a flashlight. No sound in these mountains except for the sound of this piano. <sighs> and I was like, there's still a heartbeat in Malibu because oh, there's still that. a sound of this piano still lives. And it was profound, wasn't it? I'm grateful beyond means because Al had shared so many stories of her childhood and being at the piano and she said breaks from revision and to be able to sit on the couch and listen to the magic you've worked and her playing it. But definitely in that fire time, yes. you could watch from where she'd been playing tunes and that was the period of time when she started actually creating. And there's a, a theme from the fire story that came out of that. And that's the one question right. I was going to ask and it, I was pretty sure I'll ask it later on, but sure. it fits in with this now is that it proved from Al's investigation on the East Coast, going around and, no, it's not worth it. It's not worth the cost, not worth the price. Have you thought about it within you over the years as to how you get it emotionally or how you care and connect? Because you do, and you have all those good qualities to you. They must, you must question that within yourself, saying, well, what shaped me? How did I grow into that, that kind of emotionally intelligent journey of the human soul person kind of thing? 
Well, I have uh, had the wonderful luxury to be able to do jobs that uh, make a difference in the world. I certainly don't want to do anything just to make a paycheck. I'm at that point where I don't need to do that just for a check. I want to do something that's going to be a value in the world. So if it's something where it's not a piano that has value to people sentimentally, then I'm not going to shuck and jive and just say, oh, yes, let's pony up 10 grand on this thing and just for a paycheck. But I could see with the story of this that it had some uh, significance to you. God, that means just so much to me. It really, really does. I can see the emotion and you know, I'm a lightweight in that respect. So uh, I get a little choked up thinking about it. And I, I remember you, you know, your reaction was with tears. And we shared a connection with your mom too. You knew what it's like to be that connected to your parents, your mother, and know that somewhere in there your music lies in that. And you're not just returning a piano, you're returning a memory in a moment. And we we talked about that. And that's what Jules is leading to, how you relate to that and and your own story, your heart connection with the piano, your mother, your, your journey with music. Well, it's a bit like the Red Violin, that movie, you know, where they trace the history of this violin over 400 years. And it changes hands, obviously, in those four centuries. And uh, in this case, it it is changing hands and we have breathed new life into it. It's just so spiritually gratifying to be able to to do that and to be able to offer that for people. But you asked me earlier, sir, about the... How did I get into this piano restoration thing? Your whole music, when music first touched you and led you. Mm. Some people arrive later in life, maybe to music or, or someone like me who, for whatever few gifts I got bestowed, it wasn't music, which we always joke is why they kicked me out of Wales for not being musical. <laughs> you can't sing, leave now. Yeah. You're not a Welshman. Exactly. Yeah, literally where when music first came into your life and yes. as Al said earlier on, how, it, how the seed grew and how you grew with it. Wow, that's a question that could go really, really deep. I'll try to respond to that. It kind of came with this one person who gave me a guitar, but but let's back up a little bit before that, which is uh, my earliest memories of music landing in me are my folks took me to a Saturday matinee thing of a local production of My Fair Lady. I could have danced on It's just laden with these incredible songs. And... I just remember that really landing with me. Boom, it lit me up. And it's just like, wow, how cool. And my folks had some records that I remember playing. And then um, they tried to get me to take piano lessons when I was six. And I thought, if this is what music is about, I don't want any part of it. I don't want any part of it, man, because I, I looked at those stupid dots and <laughs> sticks. And I still do to this day. I still have this allergic reaction to it. And then um, <laughs> the one event that really changed my life. So that was at six piano lessons. And I, I doth protest so much. Mm-hmm. They said, all right, you don't have to take it. And then my mother has taken me to this the house of a friend of hers. His name was Toy. How about that for a cool name? And uh, they're over there having adult conversations. I'm just so bored as a little seven-year-old kid. And I'm just kind of looking around and over in the corner is this uh, guitar. And so I pick it up while they're doing their boring, you know, adult talk. And I'm just kind of plucking around and plucking on the strings. Boom, boom, boom. Boom, boom, boom. Boom, boom, boom. Hey, that's taps. <laughs> Not quite. <laughs> but uh, with that, uh, you know, I thought, oh, that's kind of cool. And then as we were leaving, the guy said, hey, I saw you plucking around on that guitar. Do you like it? I said, yeah. He goes, he goes, take it. It's yours. No way. Wow. And uh, 
I do get a little bit choked up about that moment because it's really at the heart of my whole existence. <laughs> it is. You think about having a an impact on somebody's life. And with that one little gesture, it's like the ship that gets hit by the tugboat, right? And suddenly the, the ship is now off in a different direction, ever so slightly. Yeah. But over the arc of 20 years, 30 years, it's it's gone a completely different direction in life. So I never did get a chance to tell him what a profound effect he had on me by this one little gesture of magnanimity. So I, I took it home and started messing around on it. And eventually James Taylor comes along and I, I start trying to pick up those chords and chord changes. And then a friend says, hey, why don't we get a duo and we start working up Crosby, Stills and Nash. And I find this little avenue for expression through music. And oh, if I do this little E chord that I learned in Gloria and that A chord, I can mess around and I can create a, create something with that. And it became an avenue for expression. And I was kind of a, a chubby little self-pitying kid. and Music really did become my salvation. It became this way to express myself. And then around the age of 19, my stepfather gave me a funky old upright piano. And then I took my James Taylor riffs, transferred them over to piano, little hammer-on things. And that would ultimately become the cornerstone of my artistic style, what I do as an artist. Those kind of Floyd Kramer, James Taylor, David Foster, Dave Grusin, those kind of things that creeped into my piano style. We talk about this all the time is that we love the jigsaw of each individual's journey and what components go into to making yeah. us who we are. And same with our I believe, you know, how do our beliefs shape us? And just knowing you and, and, and knowing your music too is that you, you can't go over to someone's house and then, hey kid, here's a piano. <laughs> no. Right. But it had to be a guitar. It also had to be a guitar because, like you explained there from the James Taylor kind of riffs, you bring a guitar, from my understanding, and we've talked about my musical layman terms, and you bring that guitar nuance into the piano, don't you, as part of your own style of, of music. It's sort of Absolutely. like a perfect part of the jigsaw and, and the generosity of spirit of the, the guy to say, hey, you take it, kid. Right. We've seen in our time when we, when we see you, because that was my original question, is you've given back 10,000-fold to others mm. from the initial act of pay it forward generosity in a way yeah it's like when you give me my piano you give me my music back because i believe the be you is be and believe in you the authentic yeah. you the original you the one you were born to be and so to find out you're a musician your music finds you someone gives yeah. you what it is you are and in essence there's that sudden something opens up and you're like yeah there was the key that unlocked the door to everything yeah. i have inside yeah. of me yeah it's extraordinary that it seems such a simple act, but we don't know what the simplest act of kindness does for anybody. It, yeah, we, it comes back multiplied. And it can be just the little tiniest moment. In that case, it was the guy just making this decision. Oh, heck, I'm probably not using this guitar that much. And, and maybe this kid would like it. So little did he know, it just he had this profound impact on my life and shaped everything it informs everything that i am right now and in terms of having impact on another and how do you, you share that gift one of my highlights every week is giving piano lessons to my granddaughter serena she just turned 11 and uh, i just adore her like crazy and it started off as it's just kind of the same way of like we do it via zoom she's in north carolina we do these piano books and I have the same one on my end, and we marched along. And, and she got a little bit bored with the sticks and dots, kind of like 
me and I had to change the game plan. And it's evolved over the last nine months, or really since COVID hit was when we started. I call it PJ's Playhouse, Papa Jim's Playhouse, where we can <laughs> just uh, explore creativity and imagination. And, you know, the, all the rest of it comes from that. So if I can just inculcate that one little thing in her, that appreciation for the arts, and it doesn't have to be reading music and just even playing a few notes on piano and then seeing how the more you study music, the better your math brain becomes and, and vice versa. And just having a sensitivity to the arts and dance or any kind of art form that, that speaks to your innermost spiritual beauty. Whatever I can do to help cultivate that with her, then it's time well spent. And I just, I adore the hang. Just such a fun, fun thing. It's about expression and freedom of expression. And at the moment in a world that's got a lot of things going on around censorship, it's like you can't censor the music out of the soul. So here we go. And one of the things when the piano first came back to me was the desire to go beyond the page. I was trained to read. Yes. notes and I had I knew I needed to kind of go back and remember how to do that but having all the lights and the electricity turned off really helped me there you go good not, not be able to do that uh, one of the guys from the composer's breakfast club for my birthday came over and and just went oh this is what you skipped you didn't learn how music was formed so here's a couple of lessons on that and try to go off page please and let us know how yeah. it goes which yeah, is great. beautiful. The guy was made a very perspicacious observation in that not everybody's wired the same way. You obviously were taught and you probably have a, a better propensity to, to understand the written page. I do kind of think that there's the people who are, have a better facility with left brain stuff and right brain stuff. Left brain folks are going to be more able to go into the dots and sticks, you know, and see the printed page. And the right brain people, like me, once I figured out, oh, I can just listen to it and translate that. Ideally, you want both. And I envy people like you who can look at a page of music and just like, okay, let's go. But, oh, yeah, uh, that's not me either. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I can look at a page and know some things on it. Right. It's just a beautiful thing to learn that there is no right or wrong. There are no rules. Right. And and whatever works for bringing forward the expression of yourself. Both of you are too far too humble because, yeah, I've listened to that music and it's such a million miles away from me. What springs to mind just in that part there is I did a very quickly, like I had a production yeah. company in the UK and I did a, a three season TV show where I brought two well-known personalities together that would oh, have really? some common interest. But I am um, wow. one of the episodes I did, Hans Zimmer with um, Darren Brown, who's a British mentalist magician. And because I love the subconscious, it really stood out when Hans says, bearing in mind, Darren Brown should be the guy talking to subconscious. And it's Hans that goes, he very often just sits on his hands, sits on his hands <laughs> yeah. and doesn't let his subconscious just fall into regular riffs. He thinks through. Right. So for him, obviously, the way he's working through music, he's, okay, what's the visuals of this? What am I composing music to? But he stops his hands from going on the piano for a bit and lets the subconscious bring something up and then brings the hands up. And it absolutely everyone works exactly like you're saying so differently. Do you, obviously the music comes first before the words because most, yeah. but do you, are you me, yes. humming it? Are you seeing a picture first? Do you hum it in your mind or did you just let your fingers go? Or What a great question and what a great subject and yet another that could, that we could spend weeks on because it's a magic thing, man. Where do those melodies come from? And for me, I find that the best melodies come when I'm really not thinking about it. Absolutely, I agree with Hans. 
you know, you do, you're going to do your best composing away from the piano because otherwise you're going to be kind of limited to what you're capable of playing. And in a perfect world, you hear something and develop it in your brain and then translate, okay, how would I play that on piano? Which is, by the way, how I've become a better pianist. I don't consider myself a really great pianist, but I'm a good Jim Wilson composer. I'm the best composer of Jim Wilson music that there is in the world. And I'll give myself that. Heart of Innocence is a melody that came completely independent of the piano. It came to me in a dream. It's on my first album, Northern Seascape. I was doing my first record and my engineer, Gerald Lawner and I were sitting there listening to the first four songs that we had recorded in the can and we listened to them back to back. And I thought, damn, this could be really a, a somber thing. I, I need something a little bit more up-tempo but I don't compose on demand and I'm, and it's too late for this record, but maybe for next. And uh, I went to bed and I had this dream that I was driving in a car and I was listening to the radio and it was like a really misty day out and I was listening to the radio and this piano melody comes on the radio, solo piano. And um, God, I think, God, that is, that is neat. What is that? That's, I haven't heard that before. That's beautiful. And then the announcer comes on and he goes, and that's the latest from Cheryl Crow. <laughs> Wait, Cheryl Crow? <laughs> what? <laughs> what? And I, I'm just thinking, that's not a Cheryl Crow melody. Then I don't know if the alarm came off or I just started waking up and I realized, oh, I'm getting offered this melody. Wow. And uh, so, and you know, it's so slippery and so amorphous in that dream state and trying to come out of it slowly enough to where you once you kind of wake up it's gone it's so slippery and vaporous it, it vanishes i just sort of went over it over it in my mind and and then kind of tried to okay that's on the third that's the fifth I'm just kind of talking to myself slowly not waking up too much but still remaining in that dream state so i finally had it and i went to the piano when i finally got out of bed and worked it up and that became Heart of Innocence. We couldn't deprive you listeners that that was a little clip there from Heart of Innocence. And what FM uh, channel did you disc jockey for? <laughs> I'm and still. As far as listeners, we want to we thank Jim Wilson for that wonderful little tidbit. We're doing well on this Friday afternoon as we. Go in toward the weekend, and this is Jules, jovial Jules, they call me. <laughs> you do it far better than me. Well, I'm still struggling with, you go to My Fair Lady and start <laughs> embracing yourself with tunes, and I'm still going, go on, Dover, move your blooming ass. Your blooming ass. <laughs> That's right, Henry Higgins. You know, it, it went from, from that to, uh, to Sh- Sh- Shenandoah was one of the ones that I kind of, look at the musical DNA of a lot of my songs and I go, I can tra- trace that all the way back to so the, the melodic shape and it just, it kind of, that one really landed. And then inexplicably also in my musical DNA is Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath and Deep Purple and this really Brilliant. hard rock. So this amalgam of some things that probably shouldn't be together in the same cauldron and yet they (laughs) they do they exist there it's your perfect fit your perfect jigsaw as we say yeah exactly 
I love that. I love that. Yeah. And it was just exactly what the exactly what the record needed. This kind of light thing to lighten things up and yeah. God, it's just amazing how kind of yeah. materializes, you know? Yeah, we're firm believers in the dream space or the, sure. the power of the subconscious. I've woken up with someone playing and singing guitar and all the lyrics. I don't know guitar. And I couldn't remember how the song went, but I remembered the lyrics. And so whatever, Hmm. in that description you have about, oh, I just got to stay slightly asleep. Not totally asleep because I got to be aware, but how do I catch this? And being in that kind of half meditative, half conscious place that you can catch the inspired. And it is the inspired when it comes through. It's beautiful. And as beautiful way you describe that. I love that. Yeah, everyone, even if they're not at this moment in time creating in, or being an, an artist in any capacity, can relate to your description of that and how you're saying. You just, you know, if you're open enough to be able to do anything that you want to do, yeah. you do get yeah. given guidance, if for want of a better word, from other areas of life. You know, every, right. every artist well, has said, oh, you know, I hold a pen or I just pick up the guitar and <clears throat> I'm going to do a total disservice to it. But even um, I think one of the Gallagher brothers of Oasis says, man, I'm, I'm just getting on that guitar or the piano all the time in case some other bugger gets it. I love it. And I agree with that concept, man. It's like, oof, where does it come from? Does it come from within your brain? I mean, I can understand that somebody who's like really anchored in the rational mind well, these melodies, uh, yeah, either you've accumulated them and there's a deeper part of your brain that mm-hmm. offers them up to you. And I can also get behind somebody who says, no, no, no. Because I've had people <laughs> say this about my music a lot. It, it's channeled from a higher source. Yeah. And does it? I don't know. Part of me feels that I can't explain exactly where it comes from, but uh, I can see it coming from another plane. I do feel like we absolutely shortchange ourselves by thinking all there is to this life is that can be understood through the rational mind, your five senses. It's like, no, I'm sorry, man, but that's just such a limited paradigm, you know, where there's so much more to this universe that we can even begin to comprehend. So I try to leave myself open to it and Is it from a different spiritual realm? Is it from my rational mind? I don't know. I just want to receive. And that's kind of what <laughs> Noel Gallagher. I think it was Noel rather than yeah, Noel, no. I think. But yeah. he's um... but just in that state of kind of receiving. Actually, on New Year's Eve, I just started kind of receiving something. And I was kind of messing around and started hearing some melody. And I started working on it. And it just it comes in and occupies my brain for the longest time and for days. I'm 13 days later. My brain is going, what about this? What if you did this? Could you go to the bridge there? Or can you shave this off here? What about this note for the end of the melody? You know, so some some of it is on a very conscious level and of creation. And some of it's just at this beyond our ability to comprehend yeah. where it comes from you know the inspired Question even done. max scale who was on the show and he said yeah he said just jogging on the beach right catch the tunes catch the tunes he's like as long That's as it. i just run on this beach here he's <laughs> I'm a, I'm so he'd get the words for, words it was for all his song, words right and yeah definitely. so let's let's go backwards a little bit now let's go to kind of childhood that's backing up in time. Let's go back in time, Jim. Childhood. Where did you grow up? How did your younger years influence the way you look at life now and how you journeyed with all that? First of all, I have yet to properly grow up. Good. So yeah. <laughs> that's a good thing. If you haven't grown up by 50, you don't have to. That's okay. what I'm told. That's the rule. 
I'm, I'm looking forward to finding that, finding that out whenever I finally do turn 50. Like I said, music just became this avenue for self-expression and changed me from being a little bit of a self-pitying, chubby boy to being able to express myself through music. And that and humor, there was a moment when I was in school where there was some sort of joke that I did that really landed with the class. It's like, oh. Wow. Well, that that's another way to go too. Maybe uh, maybe I can use a little humor to kind of lighten up the mood. And, were you East Coast, West Coast? Where where were you? Amarillo, Texas. There in the Panhandle. You couldn't tell that's where I was from. No. <laughs> oh yeah, he talked a little bit like that. No, I didn't have that bad of a, a dialect. But my father, you know, he was quite it's quite funny because he did have a bit of a Texas dialect, but he would do his very best to do his best British dialect walking around the house and he butchered it a bit but I think that kind of gave me the appreciation for different dialects and the fluidity of you know dialects don't have to sound a certain way but you've definitely got the humor in that though Jim every time you come around like I always joke I used to be funny before I moved to the states (laughs) but you definitely have absorbed by osmosis or maybe travels I don't know but yeah the British humour and the sarcasm, the irony that can go into that too. Where did that come from? I know what you mean, isn't it? Little Cockney going on. It, yes, I'm very, very fond of dialects and I do love travelling. And I have now been to all 50 states. So I love talking with people from different cultures and the extremely good fortune. In the 80s, I helped to develop the first MIDI adapter for acoustic piano. And I was the only guy in the world, basically, who you could get it from. And I got flown to your part of the world about a dozen times, in it, And uh, did a lot of work for McCartney and Elton and Phil Collins. At the time, Jim, to interrupt, was that for a layman like me? Yeah. Was that the MIDI yeah. adapter? Can you just tell yeah, yeah. Like, the regular listener about it? Right. It sort of does come back down to all the different things in my life that have happened and how they sort of come down to the moment of one or two people in this little moment where you make a decision to take that left turn or right turn and... In this particular case, I was tuning a piano at a studio and I could see this other guy across the room setting up at Fender Rhodes. And I think that's that Chuck Monty guy. And I made the decision to stop what I was doing and go over there and have this conversation with him. And hey, I'm Jim. I'm Chuck. Oh, man, I've heard about your Fender Rhodes modifications and stuff, which led to me working on his piano, which led him to have respect for me. And he could see that, wow, this guy really knows what he's talking about, or at least talks a good game. <laughs> and uh, a couple of weeks later, he, he calls me and says, hey, you know, I've, I've met these kids from San Jose who are working on this adapter for a piano that will allow you to hook up synthesizers to your piano and play it from your piano's keyboard. And long story short, they're looking for a piano technician who would kind of help them from that point of view. I ended up going to San Jose a number of times to meet with them and go, wow, what an incredible idea you've got here and uh, help them develop it. And so that one little moment, that little decision of like intuiting that, I think I really should meet this guy. And it led to, oh my God, the oak tree that certain things grow into in your life and you go well it started out as a little tiny twig but before that it was a seed and then well where was that seed and it was from that one moment of shake his hand which led to me being the midi adapter guy and which led to me being flown to england 
dozen times for everybody I told you and, and relationships and tons of stories uh, about fun hangs with Paul McCartney and Elton John and Phil Collins and Keith Emerson and just all these heroes that magically and mysteriously I found myself in these incredible situations of creating music with them or just hanging with them and being in that universe with them, that rarefied jet stream. It's so um, intoxicating. And I know we've skipped back and forth because you, you've led such a rich life, but you've got the components there of your own musical skills and your own musical compositions and you've been able to play, been able to minutely fine tune a piano, but also bring mm. the highest tech at the time that mm. these top musicians were obviously wanting to get their hands on. You, you brought all of those skills of you as well as your convivial nature of you together. They were lucky to have you in the room, but how do you, oh, how do you see it as you. all those components all? Because those relationships I'm sure have lasted a lot longer than turning up and Easy bit of equipment, mate. And yeah, hey, yeah, uh, hey, <laughs> It's certainly not lost on me how lucky I am to have had those two worlds blossom and flourish in a way that they're deeply gratifying. And one thing kind of feeds the other. I do feel like the better an artist you are, the better a pianist you are, the better piano technician you can be, because you're going to appreciate the finer nuances of what can be done with the piano and do regulation and voicing, which are the higher levels of piano technology. And the piano tech thing helped with the artistry thing because it, it's led to so many incredible opportunities. The artistry thing, the quick story on that is that the guitar got given to me. And then 19, I take uh, the guitar riffs, the James Taylor guitar riffs and transfer them over to the piano, which kind of ultimately becomes the cornerstone of my artistic style. So I learned piano tuning as a means of supporting myself to come out to Los Angeles and become the next Jackson Brown. And instead I became the next Jackson Brown piano tuner. <laughs> Hold, hold for applause, hold for laughter. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I came out here to to do that. And, you know, comfort kills because uh, the piano tuning thing started taking off. And literally the very first night that I arrived in California, a friend says, let's go hear this band. And uh, we go to Burbank to hear this band called Just for Grands. And it's a bunch of studio musicians who get together and play just for grins. And uh, they all became dear friends ultimately, and they all became champions of my work. All those individuals led to really successful business in six months and comfort kills in that it's like, wow, I'm kind of making some good money here and screw the starting starving artist thing. So that kind of got put on the back burner until my friend Claude Gaudet died at the age of 37 of a heart attack. That one thing kicked me so hard and it made me realize, dude, there are no guarantees and all mm -hmm. this saying uh, tomorrow I'll get around to creating the, that record, which I kind of thought of doing at that time, but I didn't quite have the courage to venture out from this identity I'd created for myself as a right. piano technician. But it was Claude's dying of a heart attack at the age of 37 that made me realize, dude, there are no guarantees. You can keep tabling this thing and never get around to it. I was shattered, obviously, from the loss of a dear friend, but it was also made me kind of looking, okay, let's do this thing. And have the mindset on that first album, Northern Seascape, I had this mindset of like, if I get that tap on the shoulder and, okay, dude, pencils down, time's up, let's go. I want to know that I've left something behind. And that first record has a little bit of that fairy dust on it in that that's 100% where that was coming from. It was just like, I don't care if this sells one record or a million records. Like, this is my legacy. I had a bunch of songs that I'd 
created that could be easily transferred into a piano featured song. And some songs that I had written in between, here's my Jackson Brownish type singer, songwriter song. And here's something I'm doing for myself. This will never see the light of day. And there's the song that ends the Northern Seascape is called Laura's World. That just did it for myself. You know, it's something that no one's ever going to hear. And um, sure enough, those songs that are in the category of no one's ever going to hear this, I'm just doing it for myself. Those are the ones that are of the highest value because they're the ones that really mean something to you, you know, and people hear that. They feel that. That's my barometer of music when I hear something. The instant barometer is how much did this really need to be made? Was this somebody going, oh, this is a clever idea? Or if it's somebody kind of trying to expiate something, trying to take this piece of coal and nasty piece of coal and turn it into something of value. You know what I mean? Definitely. Yeah, Jim, I think you shared with us that you did do that when you headed down the path of choosing really where you were going. You're like, I I started out by learning this thing about tuning pianos and suddenly I'm really good at it and it's opening doors for me. And, And then you had this moment where you needed to decide to really excel in that. You are still doing that work and the restoration work with excellence and specialization in what you're doing. And so what we're talking about is the fact that you didn't do an either or in your life. You added that and ability to make sure the rest of you was actualized as well and expressed out, not in lieu of you, the musician. Well, so the danger in that is that you can become a bit too fragged And you get too many things going on at once. So I've been fortunate in that I have been able to kind of pare it back to what is it that's uniquely me that I can offer most effectively here. So I have a team in the restoration department and we work on the whole process together. And then the most important thing that I bring to the table, besides overseeing and making sure that everything gets done to my specs, is the voicing and then bringing it out where the the tone and the touch and tone, what else is there to a pianist? I mean, at the end of the day, it can look great and everything, but if the touch is really heavy and the tone is really dull, who cares what hammers you used, what strings you used Mm -hmm. and how it looks. As an artist, I love something that has a really lovely touch and we can quantify that in the world of piano technology. We can say, what's the down weight and up weight? How many grams of weight does it take to push the key down? And then up weight means... Once the key is down, how many grams of weight will the key return before failing? So ideally, you have a lower down weight and a higher up weight. Easy to push down, quicker to return. Mm. It's almost like the the cliche, the visual of motor racing movie that might be on, for example. The real amazing mechanic picks up the hood and it's like, okay, baby, tell me what's going on here. And it's almost like the car's engine speaks to the mechanic. I love that visual, whether it's it's a film, so there's going to be poetic license. But there must be something in it when you first get out of piano where you get led to I imagine don't go through exactly the same process on every single piano this this almost has its own organic approach there must be an intuitive aspect to it as well as tune and tone indeed I have now gotten to the point where I can walk up to a piano and just play probably four or five notes and tell you everything about the piano to really get into that you want to listen thoroughly to everything and pull the action out and look at the hammers and all that but I can even tell over the phone if somebody you know wants me to evaluate a piano, I'll just go, do me a favor, go to the piano, do a quick little video, da, 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 play me a chromatic scale. And I can just tell by hearing, it, oh man, those hammers are really shot or it's really worn out. And after a while, you sort of do get a, a sixth sense of what the piano needs. 
So now you're in this space where that part is second nature to you, sixth sense, Mm. second nature to you. And you'd been bringing out your CDs in parallel of the music special to your heart. And you recently ended up on a gig with Tharlo Guthrie. Yeah. So how did that all come about? Because here's your moment now where you've got this excellence going and you've been practicing in this excellence and putting it out in your own. Right now you've got this two worlds meeting where you have your moment. Tell us about that. Well, there are occasional little reminders of like, wow, your music reaches way beyond your ability to to understand how it reached that way. So at the beginning of the pandemic, I get this email out of the blue and from Arlo Guthrie, you know, the son of Woody Guthrie and iconic folk song writer and Alice's Restaurant, most iconically, and tons of other great songs. He reached out to me and said, he was a big fan of mine, and said, Hey, man, you might think I'm crazy, but I had this crazy idea of your wonderful piano voicings and me singing on top of that. Stephen Foster's Hard Times Come Again No More. He had loved that song, and then he had this kind of intuitive, brilliant idea that this could be adapted, reinterpreted for the pandemic, because hard times are going to be coming down, mm-hmm. and they did, and we ain't through it yet. But he reached out to me, and he had this wonderful idea that my voicings, my kind of Americana roots voicings, Voicings, you know, could go well with what this song is saying. And I emailed him back. I said, yeah, I'm very flattered. Let me kind of have a listen and kind of figure out what I might be able to bring to the table. So I listened to a bunch of different versions. Tons of people have covered it over the years. Stephen Foster, it's 167 years old. It's just, it's incredible. Willie Nelson's got a version and Bob Dylan's got a version. Mavis Staples and Jennifer Warren. I listened to a bunch and I thought, well, If I were going to sort of put the Jim Wilson filter on it, first of all, I wanted to do my own little intro. So I wrote an intro that I kind of felt was in the melodic DNA of the song and then did my own voicing, slowed it down a little bit. And I sent it to him and said, oh man, that's exactly what I want. So over a period of a couple of months, we kept growing and evolving this. And my wonderful friend, Brad Cole, who's the MD for Phil Collins, he's been an arranger friend of mine forever and has done tons of work for my stuff over the years. So he kind of helped flesh it out and give it sort of an Americana feel. He added an accordion to it and we sent the tracks off to Arlo and he recorded. And then I think, well, God, we really should replace that bass sample. And I thought, I'm going to take the big swing here, man. So uh, I know Stanley Clark, and I said, hey, Stan, I've got this project that has the mission of bringing awareness to people hardest hit by the pandemic, particularly people of color. Are you? And he said, yeah, man. So he, he does it. And then Andy McKee, who's uh, I'm a huge fan of, he's this incredible guitar player, but virtuoso. And I had his contact info, and I took another big swing. And what I originally thought was going to be this little piano vocal thing, kind of simple to put together. I had to get audio files from 10 different individual sources and then ultimately videos from 10 different people. So I was the clearinghouse for all this and produced the music track and the video and performed in it. And I recorded my own video with my iPhone and synced to the music. So I've definitely found this in life that when you are on the right purpose, when you're on the right track, man, everything just kind of falls into place. You have a thought and it just manifests effortlessly. Yeah, I love those times in life when yeah. it does happen like that. And you know this is so meant to be. It's yeah. Just as a quick funny aside, when you release that with Arlo, I, I keep a journal, a writing journal. I've, I've got 27, 30 journals where I just put pictures in or write things that I find interesting and everything. And 
literally at that time, I'd put in a picture of Florence Owen Thompson. She's the Dust Bowl mother, who's the iconic black and white picture of that Dust Bowl hard times. I think I lead with that image in the you, video. You do, oh, yes. in the video, and it's yeah. in my journal. With the two kids who are facing the other way. Exactly yes. that. And What's her name? Florence Owens Thompson. Dorothea, somebody took the picture. That's but right. She was yeah. just literally driving past. She was like 20, 30 miles down the road, and she wow. it wouldn't get out of her head, and she had to go back. Wow. And take the pictures, just really encapsulated those, exactly what you're saying, hard times. Yeah, that really just says it all, man. You can see the hard times in her face, and they're the two babies and everything. And her face is, how am I going to care for these kids? And, you know. Definitely. It was so well received, that song, wasn't it, Jim? Yeah, I think we're up to 70,000 views or something on YouTube. And just unanimous, positive responses. And you can really feel the heart behind it, you know. It was an all-volunteer project. Everybody who came on board did it because they wanted to be part of this mission to bring awareness to people hardest hit by the pandemic. And, you know, what a time that March, April, May, that whole time. It was just so surreal, you know. What the hell is happening None of us had ever seen just the entire globe come to the screeching halt. Never lived anything through it in our own lifetimes. That oh, no, that. God, please tell us we don't have to again. Yeah. So I'm almost silenced by that. No, no I, I'm, I, uh, I'm kind of still processing some of that because, you know, I'm an East Coaster. I grew up. Arlo Guthrie was, mm. was a local for us. In, yeah, in the Berkshires. Right. James Taylor was a local for us in the Berkshires. He, they were our musicians for a long time. And so I was reflecting on the hometown hearts and the purity of what I feel is the intention that had also come forward through the project. And you had described it anyway, so it almost took the words out of my mouth. Like there was a, it was a heart project and it came from the hearts. Of, yeah, so yeah. Really authentic. Tell. Yeah. So here you are in you're reflecting back on all these kind of poignant moments your sliding door moments or your life-changing choices that led you to the inspired you. What beliefs do you think kind of anchored you in knowing, choose this kind of way for myself? When you're going to be making these kind of choices, they're going to come framed from a certain belief belief or philosophy. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you think are the kind of strongest beliefs you hold that are those guiding principles for you that really help you make those kind of choices? Well, when I got your email about you know, the mission of your podcast and about beliefs and how they shape our world, I remember, God, I think I did a Facebook post on this on Thanksgiving. And um, I had this strange kind of epiphany of the words, life is what you make it, which is as cliche as you can get. And, you know, you think of teenage boy with that uh, on a poster and his, on his bedroom wall, it's, life is what you make it. But I realized you take that away, uh, your thoughts about that, and it's really a distillation of everything I believe, everything I believe. Do we have to say that in the you podcast? We have to say it at least once, right? <laughs> yeah, at least we, we can I share believe, it around. I love it. I believe for every drop of rain that falls, yeah. a flower grows. I hearkened back to this Facebook post, and I have it for you if you wish. Oh. Life is what you make it. How is that a Thanksgiving thought, you ask? Bear with me. As much as that sounds like a cliche phrase that could have been emblazoned on a poster on my wall for my childhood, I realized of late that it's actually the most pithy distillation of so many of my core beliefs. Whatever you perceive your life to be, it is. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. What you focus on grows stronger in your life. Abe Lincoln said most people are about as happy as they make up their minds to be. The bottom line, the events of my life are going to be what they're going to be. How I choose to interpret them is completely my call. 
Will I make them a drag or will I choose to be grateful? 2020 has certainly been chock full of sucky circumstances, but there's always beauty everywhere if we choose to see it. So that was my little post. and That's beautiful, Jim. Well, thank you. But that really does kind of begin with my dad hammering home. My dad, bless his heart, was a firm believer in our thoughts create us. And, and he really tried to hammer that home. He was a salesman of Earl Nightingale success courses and read Dale Carnegie and Maxwell Maltz and was of the thinking that keep those thoughts positive and say those affirmations. And, right. and he was absolutely right, but it goes deeper than that yeah, because you can't just like slam a positive thought on top of something and you have to get down to the roots, the gist of it's more like positive being. That was the biggest phrase that he hammered home to me was, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. The biblical phrase of whatever you perceive in your brain yourself to be, that's that's it. If you have some really crappy thoughts about yourself, then you're going to manifest that. The dichotomy there was that he was on the right track of positive thinking, but he forgot the positive action part of it too, you know? So I kind of got a little bit allergic to the positive thinking part of it. And so I thought, screw it. If it is to be, it's up to me and just kind of push through and do. So I'm, I ultimately have come back to the thing of, yes, you can work hard towards something and you need to. You have to give it the elbow grease, but you also have to trust that there is some sort of magical thing behind the power of intention. And I find that if I kind of set my intentions and I see it clearly enough and I feel it, then I do my best to get out of my own way. We get that. I think for us, one of the things that we talked about in some of our early episodes is the difference between really the word belief and the word think. Right. Because for us, belief is coming from the heart of the matter. And you can have a positive outlook, but if the underlying belief is broken or the underlying belief isn't right. buying in, it doesn't matter what you affirm. It's the belief that's going to run the show because it's that one that's driven <coughs> from the heart that's creating the manifestation, the capability of the magic part, right? Mm -hmm. They got to be in line. It sounds like that's what you did is that combination of the best of what your dad was saying isn't wrong. You have to get your mind around limitless, boundless possibility and positivity yes. is part of that. Yes. But you also got to do the work perseverance yeah. is part of that and make room for magic and get your heart in right. line with what you're trying to create make sure they're yes. all all in line you know i love that make room for magic when we talk yeah, about these core beliefs almost to the premise of what we're doing with i believe is we did an episode on i cannot believe I don't believe because the thing with intention or especially fist pumping positivity, you've got to be at it 24 seven because you can state that positive thought. And then the subconscious goes, okay, well for us to reach that positive thought, you have to work through your limited thought of this. The, I don't right. believe. Yeah, that's you know, right. It has yeah. to be in tandem with the subconscious, the being, as you said, the imbuing of that, as well as the imprinting of that. Yeah. Uh, more than anything, I'm kind of a, afraid to get in my way. So I try to just put my focus on having the intention and seeing it clearly what it is that I want, a record by April, whatever it is, and then just try to get on my own way because I can just as easily have a counter intention that kind of gums up the work. So I try not to give it too much thought. And yeah. if the intention is strong, then get out of the way. Yeah. yeah. That's the cake metaphor, isn't it? In the oven. Once you put all the mixture in the oven, just let it rise. 
Don't keep mm-hmm. opening yeah. the door because it all starts cracking and collapsing. And the yes. power of intention is giving yourself space to align yourself to the vision and dreams you have. And then you get out of the way of the maker. And you know, having looked across your life and the way that your life unfolded, you couldn't have written it that way. You wouldn't have known even a lot of those steps and those people would show up on your stage to make that possible. Right. And you had to be eyes wide open and willing to participate in that, take those brave steps towards the awkward, courageous moments of shaking hands with somebody you don't know or stepping into the magic beyond the fear to let that happen. Well, amazing how it unfolded. You're like, oh, all I thought is this. (laughs) Wow. I'm on the radio with Arlo Guthrie at the end of a pandemic year I never saw coming. Right. I do believe that in your story, it sounds like possibility and magical possibility beyond tangible comprehension. Maybe inspiration is is a big underpinning part of your belief system. Absolutely. Last couple of questions. Sure. Knowing what we've just covered there, and and again, they come pretty organically as we're we're chatting away with so much to cover. When we're talking about your dad, and I got a picture instantly almost with your description there of your dad. And and also the one thing that stuck out for me as well, when I was looking back at your back catalogue of music was the song that you wrote for your aunt Billy Jo. Yeah. There's a lot of, what I could feel in your description of that is a lot of unconditional love that was coming for you. I know full circle, you're right there now and you've got that connection with your granddaughter and you're teaching her how to play piano. How's the feminine and the feminine influence shaped you as you've gone along the journey? Well, I write all my songs in uh, dresses uh, and I wear a tutu. We'd love it if you were doing it in your dress. There's no Yeah, exactly. A friend of mine wrote this lyric, I'll be as strong as I have to and as gentle as I can. The yin and the yang of it all. That's uh, my one tat. There you go, oh, man. Hey, look at that. He's got, there we go. He's got the tattoo. That's, that my is... solitary tat, man, the yin and yang. There it is right there. Masculine and feminine. And, uh, you know, those things really need to be in balance. And if you live a life out of balance, you're not going to be firing on all cylinders. Certainly with music, certainly I think the muse, don't we kind of regard the muse as a little bit more of the feminine nature, I suppose. And I have a hard time sort of categorizing it in, in those terms, masculine or feminine, creativity-wise, but absolutely. Let's call the masculine part, so that part that has the power to move forward and try to get things done, and the feminine part, the more appreciation of, of arts and the sensitivity and stop and smell the flowers. Well, man, if those two can coexist, and what a lovely thing to coexist peacefully. That's beautifully put. We're doing these podcasts to help people find things to anchor in in themselves or inspire Mm. them. Knowing people are struggling with positive mindsets or even finding hope in this time. What would be something that you would say helped you that could help somebody else now in these times? Because these are challenging our most positive (laughs) beliefs for sure. Well, I do know that the pandemic has certainly leveled the playing field. It's reduced things to their most important. In a way, it's brought us closer together, us as a society. But for me, I I know that I've found myself connecting with friends more deeply now. We do set aside time to have Zooms with friends and little cocktail happy hour in a way that we really didn't before. So those kind of things are really gratifying. Once you kind of sort of have a chance to slow down, which the pandemic certainly gave us a chance to slow down and kind of reevaluate, well, gosh, what is important? 
well, survival. Let's let's talk about that. But like I said, it's enriched and enriched and embiggened. It's done made our connections with other people more better. <laughs> <laughs> but I agree. I think you know it's one of those things where it's that counter force to the message. If the message is social distance, the truth yeah. is connect. Oh, I like that. That's the message you're saying. You're saying, okay, well, you know what I found was the most important thing during the most disconnecting time was to choose connection in my mind and heart. Yeah. And go there and be with people no matter what. And I do think that's a choice. I think that's a mindset choice. It's a something that can lift somebody right out of their sense of aloneness and distance. It's by the choice mm. not to have to stay yeah. in that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're kind of speaking to another truth of like the more I focus on being of value to other people, the more it enriches me. The more love I put out, the more I get back. Wow, isn't it interesting? It's the more love I put out, the more love I get back. Hey, somebody should write that down. I think I'm on to something. I, I may have been the first to ever discover that, ever. And, and that's what's powerful. I know, joking, we talked about it at length as well in one of our episodes, just Al and I together, is that what you put out is what you get back. And you can say, well, it's a cliche. But it's, it's interesting times, I think, because I talked in terms of memes, live in the moment, be in the now. We all heard them, but the slow down part of what you're saying, yeah. it's a great time to actually revisit them. What you're doing is embodying that, what I put out with that love and then I'm, I'm receiving it back witnessing action and validation and it's tangible and you, you see it see the magic happen all the time you know they say cliches are a cliche for a reason aren't they mm. but we're hypered up the yin yang with cliches at the moment but not necessarily people are revisiting them to see what the real meaning of that statement or that saying is for you jim too in hearing your whole conversation today that does sum it up what we give out we get back and that starts really yeah. right from the guitar Hmm. It got given to you and you gave music back to many people. It got given back again and it's just kept expanding. Yeah. I know we simplify it at the end into these kind of framed statements, but I'm a firm believer that the way they come out of the person who's speaking are the full story. That's why we said what shaped and honed your beliefs from your life that did it. Well, it is kind of pay it forward because it comes back. It's amazing. And you said that right at the beginning and you said that right at the end. You didn't intentionally sew it that way, but it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, we bracketed it perfectly then. You did. It's almost How like you that? wrote music. Jim, for all our listeners, there's so much of a body of work of what you've done. Where are you most comfortable people can reach out and check out your records and your videos? And where's the happiest place for us to direct people, which we can put in the show notes? JimWilsonMusic.com. All my music is available there and links to buy the songbooks that I have and 10 records and links to videos that are taken from the two PBS specials that I've had the honor of doing. There you have it. So JimWilsonMusic.com is the best way to get in touch with you for everything from music to piano work. My other world is LAPianoServices.com. Jim, thanks so much for coming on the show. Oh. It's been absolute pleasure for us and just we could chat all day. We'd have, we'd have a well, five-hour podcast if we weren't careful. <laughs> well, Julison, <laughs> Jules, what a pleasure. I adore you both and I'm, I'm honored to have been a guest on your podcast. And I love the mission of what it's about. And here's to that. Here's to that. Here's to that. Here's to Thanks, and so for okay. anybody listening, if you want to get in touch with Jules and I, the best way to do it is an ibelieve.com, I-B-U-L-I-E-V-E.com. And if you're really like what we're doing and you want to help us out and sponsor our ability to carry on, you can go to buy me a coffee. 
dot com forward slash I believe. And now it's your turn. What do you believe? No, what do you believe? No, what do you believe? <laughs> awesome. No, you. Thanks, Jim. Jim. You're a star. Awesome. Yes, I